Good afternoon. I'm going to give a talk with the title Artificial Intelligence and Religion. These are two topics not often brought together, but I hope to be able to show you that there are connections between them, some of them going back quite a way historically and are of some interest. There's no overriding intellectual theme in what I say. I have no particular lines I need to get across to you, um, but I hope I'll be able to interest you in the connections I draw. It's a little bit of a rag bag of items, but I'll, I'll draw what connections between them I can. Here, slide two, please, you'll see a very ancient piece to start us off on the idea of machines and religion, at least. It's a Tibetan prayer wheel, very ancient, standing in a stream in Tibet where the stream has been, as, the, as Buddhists believe, turning out the prayers mechanically with the stream for hundreds of years. Slide three, please. This is what the talk's about. We're going to start by going back to cybernetics, the old embarrassing relative of AI, and I'll say a word or two about the theology of omniscience and benevolence to set the stage. Then there'll be three sections on what I'll call romantic visions of machines as perfect, by which I mean 19th century romanticism and the connected, tightly connected ideas of making human-like things, augmenting humans, and God machines. All these three are very relevant and lively topics today in technology and thought. Finally, I'll come to something slightly different, that of automating religious practices. Slide four, please. Remember, too, that great intellects are full of surprises in this area. I like this quote of Wittgenstein's. I'm not a religious man, but I cannot help seeing every problem from a religious point of view. It's quite a strange idea. And Bayes, Bayes, who was a cleric and whose theorem underlines most of machine learning and modern artificial intelligence, he came up with his theorem so as to defend the probability of miracles against the arguments of Hume in the 18th century. And Gödel, who many of you will know, arguably the greatest logician of the 20th century, spent his final years in Princeton on the ontological proof of God's existence. And on the other side of the fence, Daniel Dennett, who is a famous militant atheist, has written quite a bit about his puzzlement at why religious beliefs survive at all under evolution. He believes that since they're obviously false, evolution should have got rid of them, but mysteriously it hasn't. He wants to know what is their survival value. I shan't be answering that question here. Slide five, please. Let's go back to cybernetics. Cybernetics in the 50s and 60s was the ancestor of AI. It dealt with very different kinds of objects. It was what we call continuous mathematics, not discrete mathematics like computing normally is. It was against representations in computers. It had what we call analog computing, computing with physical devices rather than digital one zero bits like digital computing. It was interested in modeling animals and insects. It was based on models of brains and networks and its key ideas were feedback and learning. Uh, one of the most famous cyberneticists in Britain, Gray Walter, had these mechanical tortoises of which he showed movies that went about a room seeking electric plugs that they could plug themselves into, learn to plug themselves into so as to keep going. This was all got rid of when Sirius AI came on the scene in 1960s, and I might say it was banished to the attic of artificial intelligence. Slide six, please. AI is completely different. The traditional AI that ruled between 1950 and 1990 was completely different from cybernetics in every way. It was based on representations, on the use of logic, on digital hardware. It thought about and modeled intelligence quite independent of brains, animals, and humans. That was how John McCarthy at Stanford described it. It wasn't interested in statistics, and it wasn't continuous mathematics. It was, it was digital methods 
which logic pretty much sums up the general idea. Now that has declined again as the wheel of history has come round with machine learning which rose in the 1990s and I shall argue later in the talk that that eclipsed symbolic AI which ruled through most of my life and could be seen as a return to cybernetic ideas. Slide 7 please. Why have I brought up cybernetics? Well because the founders of cybernetics had things to say about religion um, more explicitly and straightforwardly than their successes in artificial intelligence. Um, cybernetics, by the way, had an had a enormous influence on intellectual life in Europe, particularly in France, with thinkers like Lyotard. They were, they were much taken by cybernetics. It's hard to imagine now, since the idea has almost disappeared in this country. Let's have slide, uh, slide eight, please. Wiener uh, was the great formalist. The, he was a formalist. He was a mathematician behind cybernetics. He's thought of as the founder of cybernetics and of turning feedback into a mathematical notion. But he produced in his last years an extraordinary book called God and Golem, Inc., a comment on certain points where cybernetics impinges on religion. And the golem was an idea... Let's have slide... Um, slide 8, please. The golem, there's a representation of it, a rather ugly thing, was supposed to be a mythical creature created by the great rabbi of Prague, in, uh, in 16th century Jewish Prague. Yeah, probably the golem never existed, but Wiener took it as a, as a, as a symbol of what it might be to create uh, uh, a human-like thing in the past that had religious significance. Let's have slide 10, please. In that monograph in 1961, Wiener argued that there was a cosmic evolutionary significance in the fact that we were now on the edge, he believed, and that's 60 years ago, we're still on the edge, in the idea of self-reproducing machines. He said that those were in principle possible and that humans would then, once they could make self-reproducing machines, would have take on, taken on a key function of God as traditionally understood, a God that makes things in his own image. He thought this represented an absolute shift in human thinking. And he thought evolution was just the mechanism for doing this and cybernetics was part of evolution. One of the ideas that interested him, and which we shall come back to later on in the talk, is what is the image of this machine that produce, reproduces itself and is like us? What's the image of it to be? Slide 11, please. Here in Britain, there was a famous cyberneticist who led the pack, more or less, called Stafford Beer, extremely interesting man who survived into this century. Um, he, in 1966, wrote a very strange paper called Knowledge of God, he backed a strange theory called hylozoism. Um, you're probably aware of the notion of panpsychism. Panpsychism is the idea that um, God is in everything, uh, that everything is mind. Um, pantheism, excuse me, is the idea that God is in everything. The whole universe is God. And panpsychism is the idea that everything in the world is mind. Everything is in some sense mental. It's a very traditional idea. It's often called idealism. And Stafford Beer had a particular version of it he called hylozoism, that everything's alive. And therefore he thought cybernetics exactly summed up this view of the world, that everything was alive, and that cybernetics for him then was a system of black boxes, boxes whose working you couldn't see, whose inner mechanisms you couldn't see, that would adapt to the world and learn it and function in it, like Grey Walter's tortoises, but can't know it. So a key idea of Stafford Beers was that the world is fundamentally incomprehensible. Those of you who know German philosophy of the last century will know that this is an idea associated with Heidegger. Um, but here we're talking about a British 
cyberneticist. The world is fundamentally incomprehensible. You know that this is completely the opposite mindset from what we might call conventional science. Science assumes the world is understandable and science lets us understand it. So for Beer, it wasn't like that. And through this lecture, and we shall come to it at the end, there'll be an opposition between those who believe the world can be fully understood and those who believe it can't, and that these correspond to two approaches to the relationship of religion and artificial intelligence. And one of the things I shall have to say later on in the talk is that modern machine learning, which is now the thing you read about in the papers in connection with artificial intelligence, they mean machine learning, that too, just like cybernetics in the past, is about models, but which doesn't so much explain how things are. It simply models them and predicts what they'll do but doesn't seek so much to explain them. So in some sense, cybernetics, which had been banished by AI, AI, has come back to haunt it. I'm now going to say a word or two about the traditional theology of omniscience and benevolence and touch on consciousness. Um, this is a very difficult topic. Um, people have thought for a long time about what it means to know everything, and knowing everything, often called omniscience, was a classic property of God in traditional theology. In the 19th century, Laplace, the physicist, thought of a demon which he postulated would know the positions and velocities of all the atoms in the universe. In that sense, it would know everything. It would know the position and velocity of everything that the universe comprised. And somebody's worked out now that that would need 10 to the 120th bits for that. More computing that could possibly be done by the whole history of the universe. So Laplace's idea of knowing everything was something that actually couldn't be computed by any method we can currently think of. Of course, when people talk of knowing everything, they don't usually mean what Laplace meant about atoms. That seems uninteresting. So we mean possibly knowing all the facts, although, of course, knowing all the facts in the world isn't all that interesting either. But the reason I bring that up is that now we're in this very strange position that the most original thing in our time is probably the World Wide Web, which in some sense knows everything. In practical terms, you could say the World Wide Web knows all the facts in the world that humans know. And that's interesting because it's brought into possibility something that humans have thought about for thousands of years. An idea I'll come back to at the end of the talk is a point made by the philosopher Arthur Danto that knowing all the facts isn't the same as knowing the significance of anything. We'll come back to that point later. Can I have slide 14, please? Let's think about consciousness for a moment. It's not in the focus of our talk, but and I've given a talk on it here before, but it's something quite important because I'd like just to, in passing, ask the question, could something that knew everything that was omniscient be conscious? I suspect it couldn't, and if that's true, then that has rather odd consequences for God and possibly any God-like machine. Um, when we think of consciousness, we tend to think of attention, focus. I'm conscious of something. There was a TV program a year or two ago called Years and Years, in which there was a girl character who had a brain implant, so she could be aware of everything in the world all the time. She said she was aware of every beggar in Delhi, or it might have been Peking, I'm not sure. But think about that for a moment. How could you be aware of every beggar in Delhi? Does that make any sense? Did the character in the TV make any sense? Could you be conscious of everything? Um, one great philosopher, possibly the greatest of all philosophers, who thought the answer was yes, was Leibniz. Leibniz, in the 17th century, had a view of the world that was made up of things he called monads. We needn't bother what they are. You and I would be monads. This computer would be a monad. My finger's a monad. But for him, God was the supreme monad. 
all monads for Leibniz were a bit conscious and they had dim awareness. So my finger would have very little awareness. I'd have a bit of awareness. But for Leibniz, God was a supreme monad who had all awareness, was aware of the content of all other monads and could see, as it were, he put it, all points of view. So that was an idea that you... Leibniz tried to make sense of the idea that God could be conscious of everything, a godlike thing. The monad was godlike for him, could be conscious of everything. In the 19th century, there was the greatest, one of the greatest philosophers was Hegel. And Hegel had this strange idea, which has never quite gone away, which is that we are the conscious part of the universe. We are the only part of the universe that knows anything, that is knowing, he believed, and therefore we represent somehow the universe coming into being as a self-conscious object. And of course, then one wants to ask, is the World Wide Web part of humanity and the universe becoming conscious. I'm, I have no conclusions here. I'm just raising two different points of view on the possibility of whether something that knew everything could be conscious or not. Uh, slide 15, please. Uh, let's think about benevolence for a moment. It'll come back later. Um, Nick Bostrom in, this, in Oxford has written a famous book called Superintelligence, where he argues that there will, may well be a superintelligence, a godlike being, and it will inevitably destroy us, and it will be malign, it will definitely not be benevolent. And I would argue that that's a very strange idea because humans have always thought that um, not just their creator was possibly irrelevant, the, sorry, possibly benevolent, excuse me, um, the Old Testament's a bit unsound on whether the creator's benevolent or not, but we've certainly assumed always, humans have, that humans are well disposed towards their creator, which they believe to be God. But Bostrom takes the opposite point of view, please note. Bostrom thinks that this superintelligence that we might create will be ill-disposed towards us. I think this is very unlikely. Why wouldn't it be benevolent towards us which had created us and keep up the same old tradition that religion has always had? Um, so I'll want to come back to benevolence later. Let's have slide 16, please. So let's start these slides, these themes running on romantic visions of machines as perfect. This is a, a long-running theme in history and thought, and I'd like to split it into three. First of all, the long tradition of making human-like things. Uh, slide 17, please. Um, this goes way back to Ovid, the famous, one of the first great storytellers. Ovid told the story of Galatea and Pygmalion. Do you remember it? Well, you certainly do remember it, because it turned up in Shaw's play Pygmalion, which, of course, was turned into a musical called My Fair Lady except that there the story had changed. In Ovid's story, um, uh, Galatea, the sculptor, makes a beautiful statue, sorry, other way around, Pygmalion, the sculptor, makes a beautiful statue, Galatea, and falls in love with it, and she comes alive. Um, here, let me show you slide 16. Uh, there's a wonderful 19th century picture by Jerome of the statue of Galatea coming alive. Isn't she wonderful? Um, and of course, in the Shaw play and My Fair Lady, it's no longer a statue. It's that the professor of linguistics wants to turn the young flower girl into a sort of living statue who's modelled on his desires and can, will be able to speak properly. Let's go back to slide 17, please. Um, this is a long tradition, then, of making humans that are good and possibly better than us. Uh, the 19th century German writer Kleist wrote a book called Marionettentheater, um, which has recently been taken up by the philosopher John Gray. And Kleist argued there, which is a thing that many people have argued, it, it's Australian much writing and poetry in the 19th century, that puppets in some way, marionettes, are more perfect than us. 
And then for the strangest reasons, because they're not conscious, a strange idea that their lack of consciousness makes them superior to us because consciousness can be a kind of delusion. It presents us with choices and makes our life difficult. So quite a few thinkers in the 19th century thought that being without consciousness was better. So hark that back to the idea we touched in a moment ago as to whether it would be better for a god to be conscious or a god machine. And Kleist goes on about how puppets don't touch the ground, that not touching the ground or being superior to gravity somehow made them more perfect than us. In a way, it's an absurd idea. If you read John Gray's book, which I recommend in the readings for this talk, you'll see how much he draws out of that idea. But you see the relevance to our theme because it means that if they are more perfect than us, then the puppets would be a step towards a machine god by definition. Let's go to number 20, please. And there may be a cultural difference here. Um, in the Eastern traditions, uh, thinkers seem to see this differently. Uh, Japanese and Buddhist traditions particularly seem to see machines differently. Let me just read you that bit you can see on the screen from the president of the Robotic Society of Japan. In Japan, we believe all animate objects have a soul, so a metal robot is no different from a human in that respect. There are less boundaries between humans and objects. There's obviously some truth in this in culture because the Japanese seem to find it far more easy, far easier than we do to adopt robots into their society. They have seem to have none of the hostility to them and they seem to see no problems in principle in making machines like us. Okay, so now let's turn slide, um, that's slide 21, please. So the next stage is not just making humans, it's making machines that might be more perfect than us, but augmenting the humans we have. Slide 22, please. This is a modern movement which has a name, transhumanism. The idea that you can make humans better using technology. I've written a description of it there. The transformation of the human condition by developing and making widely available sophisticated technologies to greatly enhance human intellect and physiology. Um, some of this is just body parts. Um, the defense establishments of many countries are very busy at the moment, at great expense, trying to create perfect soldiers which have augmented body parts that makes them faster and stronger than regular soldiers. Um, uh, automation in factories may take, partly take the form of putting humans into what are called exoskeletons, which are skeletons wrapped around a human that would allow a man to lift a ton, for example. So trans transforming humans, uh, making them more interesting, possibly making them immortal by using technology. Another version of this is brain upload, that um, you could, as it were, make a human immortal by uploading their whole brain into a machine so that their brain content would survive, but not their body, which would perish. Um, some people would take very little comfort in that, but clearly some people would. Okay. So this is the idea then of an immortal digital existence in an artificial environment. This is what transhumanism means. Let's have slide 23, please. Um, this idea goes back a long way. As I said, I keep using the phrase 19th century romantics. You've all heard probably of Nietzsche's Superman. That was such a, uh, a transformed creature, better than us. There's a famous poem set to music by one of Schubert's great songs by Müller. Will kein Gott auf Erden sein, sind wir selber Goethe. It's an amazing phrase. It means, if no God will come to earth, we'll be gods ourselves. An extraordinary thought. Um, in the 1920s in Britain, there were a bunch of scientists called eugenicists, a bad word these days, social Darwinists, who deeply believed that human beings 
could be improved by technology to become superior, not just by breeding, which is what we sometimes call eugenics, but by all kinds of technological methods. J.S. Haldane, J.D. Bernal, Julian Huxley, these were among the most famous public scientists of the 1920s in England. So modern transhumanism, which is an actual doctrine believed in by um, quite a number of technologists, is this doctrine that it's a fusion of immortality, physical perfection, and a union with intelligent machines that don't have to die. Can we have 24, please? Um, there's a famous quote here from I.J. Good, who was a British mathematician uh, who did a lot of coding work in the Second World War. And in 1965, he came up with this extraordinary statement, which has, in some sense, and for many people, prompted the transhumanist movement. Good wrote, Let an ultra-intelligent machine be defined as a machine that can far surpass all the intellectual activities of any man, however clever. Since the design of machines is one of these intellectual activities, an ultra-intelligent machine could design even better machines. The intelligence of man will be left far behind. Thus, the first ultra-intelligent machine is the last invention that man need ever make. That's a very famous thought. Let's have slide um, the next one, 26, please. So, Kurzweil, who is a... Ray Kurzweil is a famous artific artificial intelligence person, allied with people whose names are Hans Moravec, Hiroshi Ishiguro, and Kevin Warwick in this country, who've argued for the singularity. By the singularity, they mean a moment at which the first ultra-intelligent machine will come into being, and it will fuse with humans and create transhumanism. Um, Nick Bostrom, Oxford, who I've referred to already, who wrote the famous book on superintelligence, he founded the World's Transhumanist Association in 1998. So Kurzweil looked beyond the singularity and said that the intelligence that will emerge will continue to represent the human civilization. And he feels that the future machines will be human, even if they're not biological. This is a very important difference between um, his approach and that of Bostrom. Um, Kurzweil sees these transhumanist improved machines are still being in some sense fundamentally human whereas Nick Bostrom's machines are in some sense anti-human and hostile to us and not made from us they're not humans being improved there's two strands here in transhumanism the wholly artificial and the fusion with humans here's a very famous um He's a very famous picture of uh, Hiroshi Ishiguro. He's very famous in Japan because he's created a robot that looks exactly like himself. I've actually seen this in Italy where he put this robot on the stage in a play that he'd written. Um, it's quite extraordinary. So he, in a sense, is trying to achieve this kind of immortality we're talking about directly by simply making a robot like himself. It's not wholly serious, but it's quite extraordinary. Slide 27, please. There's another much weaker idea of survival, which I've been concerned with in my own work, I've used the word companion to describe my own work. I can imagine a weak kind of immortality that doesn't involve any kind of brown down, brain download, but more some kind of machine that could talk to you, be your companion over long periods, and would, through long conversations with a person, would absorb much of their life and information and all the presence of themselves they had on the web that it would have access to. If you've ever been in Italy and seen these solar-powered videos you see on gra some gravestones where you could press a button on a solar-powered gravestone, sometimes called vidstones, and you see the person in the grave talk to you, you get the idea of what a companion might be like that would have absorbed everything from you and then would be like you after you were dead. Um, with a fake voice and a fake image, of course, that's fairly easy to, to do. This would be an extraordinary thing to have. I, nobody can do it now, but of course, 
Lots of movements like Siri and Alexa are definitely moving in that direction, the kind of chatbots in the home that many people now have. But you can imagine how what a wonderful kind of immortality this would be. I mean, um, you could ask it, if you had a, uh, a companion that represented your dead parent, you'd be able to ask them things you'd never asked them in their lifetime, like when they'd met. Imagine, you'd never ask them how your parents met. But if you had this survival companion of your father, you could ask it. And of course, there's another rather frivolous kind of survival that we've all seen in the movies, um, which of course is, I'm showing you a, a shot there from Gladiator. If you remember, the late Oliver Reed appeared in Gladiator after he was dead. So already in that movie of several years ago, you already had an attempt to put a dead person into a movie as a character. And I've just put there the famous shot line from John Donne at the end of one of his poems, Death Thou Shalt Die. So in transhumanism, then, we see a worldwide movement which has a lot of adherence, which is an attempt to overcome death by a range of methods, te technological methods, to have something that survives us. Let me now turn to the third of these romantic visions, the idea, getting closer to our quarry now, the idea of making gods and god machines. Um, of course, there's, there's very traditional old-fashioned ways of making god machines. Um, uh, Roman emperors used to be gods after their death. Um, Aaron had the golden calf. Baal and the god of iron in the Old Testament. The Prague golem again. There were, there were idea, the idea of god machines goes back a long way. And of course the Roman emperors after their deaths were not machines, but were, as it were, ways you could make gods. Um, as you well know, all the Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Judaism and Islam, are all pretty much against all this certainly Reformed Christianity, um, they take the Old Testament um, uh, the Old Testament uh, forbidding of all kinds of representation. The phrase in the Old Testament is, make no graven image, the first commandment. Um, and of course, these are haram in Islam, the idea of making representations of gods, prophets, or humans. Um, and there's a long tradition in Protestantism of smashing religious statues, as there is with what's called iconoclasm in, in the East, um, smashing uh, images of, of gods. Uh, nevertheless, people go, want to go on making them. Let's have slide um, 21, please. So, a question, we've talked about the superintelligence that Bostrom foresaw, and we have to ask now, are these candidates for being artificial gods? Not just enhanced humans, which is how we saw them a moment ago, but as gods. Um, Kurzweil, as we saw, insisted that superintelligences would be fused with the human. But Bostrom thought they'd be monotheistic, inhuman and malevolent. And I argue, of course, they probably wouldn't be malevolent. It's interesting, and he argues they'll be monotheistic because... Bostrom has a strange argument that if there are superintelligences, one will kill all the others, so there'll only be one. So he maintains the tradition of monotheism. And we go back to Wiener in cybernetics for a moment, and we're going to ask, what is the image of this god machine to be, and what's its image of us? Um, von Neumann, who was another great computer founding figure, contemporary of Wiener's, asked a question somewhere. He said, the ultimate automaton by which he something he meant like the ultimate automaton that I.J. Good talked about. The ultimate automaton that you yourself don't know anymore what that automaton will be. So as it were, a godlike machine will be something that we might conceivably create, but we wouldn't possibly understand what we've done. This is, I don't think this is a lively possibility right now. We're just toying here with these ideas that 
people have thought about and wondered and worried about. Let's look at slide um, uh, 32 now. Um, now. Now we come to it. Um, the singularity that Kurzweil, Kurzweil foresaw has become the basis of an AI religion, and that's really the main thing in this section, that they're actually, um, and we'll come to him in a moment, a man Yudovsky has, has um, excuse me, Lewandowski, has proposed that the singularity means there will not then be a superintelligence that can be worshipped as a god. Here's Neil Lawrence's account of this. Neil Lawrence is the professor of machine learning in Cambridge. He said, in singularism, doomsday is the technological singularity. It has the same the singularity has the same role as doomsday does in traditional Christianity, the moment at which computers rapidly outstrip our capabilities and take over the world. The high priests are the scientists, and the aim is to bring about the latter while restraining the former. He has a wonderful phrase that singularism is religion for nerds. So this is really the goal I wanted to get to in the talk, this extraordinary idea which is spreading certainly in, um, in California and places like that, that AI could give rise to religion by creating a god. Yudovsky has described a, a set of singularitarian principles to be the principles of this religion. Slide 32, please. So Lewandowski is the man who I wanted to get to because he actually promoted what he called the way of the future and registered as a church in America. Well, you might say, so what? Everybody's registered a church in America. Why is this special? Well, this has promoted a considerable amount of interest, as he says, to develop and promote the realization of a godhead based on artificial intelligence. You may find this hard to take, but it's out there and some people are beginning to think about it seriously. It's certainly no kind of immediate technological possibility. I'm interested in the way it harks back to Stafford Beer, who we talked about in the early part of the talk, where Stafford Beer opposes um, traditional scientists to cyberneticians. He says, this was Stafford Beer 60 years ago, to people read in the good liberal tradition, man is in principle infinitely wise. He pursues knowledge to its ultimate. That's to say scientists. To the cybernetician, man is part of the control system. So in a way, one theme in AI religion is that somehow we the humans are will be part of the system itself. That the, the AI godhead might be something standing over against us, like a, a, a patriarch, a terrifying, intelligent, mechanical father. Or it might be something like an artificial, intelligent mother that somehow embraces us and draws us in so that we become part of it. These have always been two different ways of looking at religion as matriarchal and patriarchal. And John Gray, in the book I referred to that started with the thinking about puppets and free will, um, Gray strongly opposes what he calls the old doctrine of the early days of 2000 years ago of Gnosticism versus cybernetics. That Gnosticism, he says, was the Greek doctrine that knowledge set you free and knowledge was power. And this can be contrasted with cybernetics, which as we've seen, cybernetics in some sense celebrates the unknowable, that we're part of a system that we don't fully understand. We talked about von Neumann's unknowability and I would say that if we think of the World Wide Web as knowing everything, of course we ourselves are in a sense part of it. Um, uh, it's not wholly separate from us anymore, it's part of our lives. We'll pursue this a little bit in the conclusion. Uh, the next slide, 34 please, is in some sense a frivolous slide. I just wanted to add an eccentric link of machines to religion here. It has nothing to do with our main theme, but if you remember Ron Hubbard's Scientology, which I think is still staggering on in Florida as a, as a sort of American 
scientific religion. You remember that he had a machine called the E-meter. In fact, it was a completely fake machine. It was meant to assess your psychological state. But I just mentioned it because at one stage, Scientology was a big pseudo-technological religion that had at its heart this curious machine that did nothing. It was actually a sort of cargo cult religion, a, a phrase I owe to Anne Cloyne, um, that the machine really didn't do anything it didn't need to. It was just a cargo cult machine that pretended to do things and impressed people. Let's go to slide 35 now, please. I now want in conclusion to look at something rather different, to automating religious practice. Automating religious practice is a sort of change of gear of what we've been talking about. There have been a huge range of applications, from the trivial to the promising, of technology to religious ends, which I think should be covered in this talk. Some are trivial in a sense, like the opening Tibetan prayer wheel in the stream. Uh, many of them simply automate access to texts and services. Um, all the churches are putting these up to enable you to pray and have services online, services with Zoom. Um, some, like Mindar, which I'll show you in a moment, are more continuous with machine gods we've been talking about before, which I would count as among the more interesting ones. And the question will come up of whether there can be automation of the role of priests and confessors through dialogue. We have slide 37, please. Mindar is a, a, a robot Buddhist priest which has been created in Japan there's a picture of him, uh, that does blessings and funerals and seems to be rather popular. Um, in fact, I'm told that in China now, if you have a, a automated funeral service, it can be somewhat cheaper. So they're growing in popularity. Here's slide 38, please. Um, Mindar was formed as a, from a Buddhist, traditional Buddhist mercy figure and is in the Koda, Kodaji, Kodaiji excuse me, temple in Kyoto, Japan. It does sermons, it does advice, it does prayers and has some interaction with humans. Um, this again goes back to the thought that I quoted to you from the Japanese robotics professor early on, that there is an emphasis in Asia that, and I quote here, all beings have the potential to become enlightened, that uh, spirits in mechanical things are not all that different from spirits in human and organic things. Um, of course, we've had it here in Europe, I'm told by um, a book I've read on God machines, that there were mechanical praying monks in 16th century Europe. But at the moment, it seems to be that Asia is taking to these kinds of things much more rapidly. Let's go to slide 39, please. Um, there's a whole mass of quite boring apps out there which I won't look at or talk about. Um, uh, you can go on online pilgrimages, which are rather like travel blogs. Alexa and Siri, the, the famous home chatbots from the, the big providers, will now do prayers if you ask them to, exactly like asking for bedtime stories. But if this line of thinking is to go anywhere, of course, the issue will be authority. Can machines have authority? That's much, more, that's much closer to the interesting artificial intelligence questions about can machines be conscious? Can machines have responsibility? Can they have authority to conduct ceremonies like masses and confessions? Let's have slide 40, please. Um, I've toyed with the idea myself of the idea of a companion confessor. Um, I talked about a companion earlier. If you imagine a computer companion that knew all about you, you could also imagine it would be able to advise you and correct you. Um, this isn't such a new idea in a way. There have been computer psychotherapists for 50 years. They haven't been very good, but they're out there. There's a range of computer automated sports coaches. Uh, so the idea of a computer confessor is really an extension of this. Um, 
And I think the idea of a computer that, a chatbot, if you like, a, a computer that knows you well and could possibly offer you explanations of your own motives and why you do the things you do and ask you to think about whether you should is an extremely interesting idea, quite aside from religion. It's an extremely interesting idea in terms of ethics and psychiatry. Um, but, but think of what the consequences will be if there were such a thing. Um, Yuval Harari, who wrote the famous Homo sapiens and uh, uh, Homo Deus books, which have caused a great stir, he has a, a, one of his big arguments in his second book is that if and when machines know us better than we know ourselves, then that itself will be a turning point in human history because the whole idea of liberal individualism will be over. Liberal individualism, going back to the 18th century and the Enlightenment, is that we are, and our whole politics is founded on it, you might say, and some of our religion, that we are independent creatures with free will who can make decisions, vote, and take responsibility for our actions. But if there are things out there like a companion confessor that are machines that know us better than we know ourselves, does that not mean that that whole era is over? I'm not sure it does. I, I don't think people find it very strange to say, um, here's somebody who knows you better than you know yourself. Um, uh, for example, arranged marriages, which are generally much of the world, rest exactly on this idea that there can be someone who knows that what you want and who you would be satisfied with better than you know yourself. Here, if we can have slide 41, please. Here's a frivolous slide which you can take, if you like, as an update of the Tibetan prayer wheel we started with. It's a it's a machine at the Pompidou which utters random prayers and that mouth moves. I should have shown it as a bit of video. The mouth moves and chatters random prayers in French in the Pompidou. Can we go to 42, please? I want to conclude by thinking back to what Gray said, John Gray, about bringing the old doctrine of Gnosticism back into play. Gray thinks that most of our current liberal ruling elite, that's a phrase we hear a lot in politics these days, isn't it, that that Gnosticism, he says, that's very close to Greek Gnosticism of two year, two centuries ago. Sorry, excuse me, two millennia ago, excuse me, 2,000 years ago. The Gnosticism is the faith of people who believe themselves to be machines. And he thinks that's a very peculiar idea that we've got into, that our science and our technology and our politics are large, and our culture are largely run by people who think that they are machines. I certainly have an interesting thought. And Yuval Harari, who I've just referred to, has come along with something like the same idea, although his point of view is very different from Gray's. He thinks that traditional humans um, thought their lives had meaning and that we have given up on this because we've opted for Gnosticism, if you like, where we believe that science and knowledge and control give us all that we need. But in doing so, our lives have lost significance and meaning. And he's very worried by this, as Gray is. Gray and Yuval Harari are both worried that our lives have lost significance, that humans no longer believe their lives have significance. And that was one of the great benefits of religion. And it's something we've lost and is going to cause a great deal of social pathology in the future, they believe. Um, I mentioned Lawrence's thought earlier that, um, as it were, an AI religion could come in an impressive father form or a protective mother form. If it were to come, I think he means that the protective mother form would be, would be preferable. And a final thought on this I'd like to go back to is that um, if there are to be godlike AIs, I'm quite agnostic myself on whether there will be, but that's the idea we've been playing with, they must communicate in language. They will have to be things that talk to us as we do. They won't be able to exploit their great speed and knowledge 
which will be greater than ours, to communicate in some other way because we won't understand. And a point I've always liked in the philosophy of language is that you can't talk of something that understands language better than humans do. It makes no sense. There could be no godlike machines that understood language better than us because we control language and we define what it is to understand and anything that understands will have to be like us because we define it. And therefore, and this is important, and I'll, I'll touch on this in closing, they'll have to function at our speed. Let me show the final slide, slide 43. Um, Lawrence at Cambridge has this interesting idea that, um, which I think is very relevant to end on, that and I'm asking the question now in the final slide, what is human uniqueness? Much of what I've talked about in this lecture has been threats to human uniqueness and not a support to it. And now at the end, we've turned around to thinkers who somehow want to defend human uniqueness, which is, of course, what religious traditions have always wanted to do. Um, Lawrence has this interesting idea that human uniqueness rests in our being very slow output devices. Because of our throats and our tongues, we can only output language very slowly, very thin, sparse signals of words. Whereas a machine can pump out millions of data bits a second, which they do just pumps out data in vast amounts. Um, but we can't. We can only uh, pump out data at a very slow rate. And he argues that this shows that we are unique and that language is unique because it's something, as it were, in which you can express meaning separate from data. Because we, we have tiny signals that we communicate with each other. And one of Lawrence's arguments is that it's because humans could only communicate with such sparse signals that they created these huge knowledge bases we have in our brains, these huge knowledge stores with which we communicate, because we have to have these huge knowledge stores to understand each other based on the very few words we speak. Um, some of you know what this means if you know languages like Japanese or think of Japanese people talking to each other, because they tend to use less words than Westerners. And Westerners are often very impressed that the Japanese seem to understand each other perfectly on the basis of very few words, because they have probably, possibly greater shared cultural knowledge and experience than we tend to assume. We tend perhaps to talk to each other slightly more as strangers. Um, so I like that idea of Lawrence's that our uniqueness may be tied to our slow output devices, which means language, and that language is part of our uniqueness. There's nothing new about that. Many people have said throughout history that La Aristotle said that language is one of the things that distinguishes human beings. I'm also put in mind by of a great philosopher back in the 1960s whose lectures I used to go to called John Wisdom. Yes, he really was called John Wisdom, the professor of metaphysics at Cambridge. And he spent weeks discussing a sentence like, Prussia attacked France in 1870, which is true. And he said, what does this mean? Because bits of land don't attack each other, so it must be a metaphor. What is it? Is it really shorthand for something about millions of Prussian soldiers? Would we understand better if we were given a huge data set of millions of Prussian soldiers moving about, which would be like an analogy with Lawrence saying the machine could spit out masses of data in a second, but we could just say a sentence like, Prussia attacked France in 1870. And there's the contrast, the contrast between expressing the same fact in something very short and very tiny, like that sentence, and reading out some huge amount of data about soldiers. But of course, that wouldn't be what it meant either. 
I'm going back to Arthur Danto, who I quoted at the beginning. Arthur Danto said that even if you knew all the facts and data, you wouldn't know the meaning of the sentence. And this, again, is something very tightly tied, I believe, to the uniqueness of language, that meaning is, in some sense, meaning content is utterly different from data. This needs saying, because people these days often think that somehow data, is the, data spread out in detail is the genuine form of information. And I believe that for human beings and our uniqueness in our lives, it's not. And this is tied up with a very traditional theological concept, with which I'll close. Um, theologians have used this phrase, imago dei. That's their phrase for what is at the top of this slide. Um, that's what evangelicals and Catholics have always argued was the unique thing about humans, that they were in the image of God. Uh, and that's what distinguished us. And I've argued that it may be something to do with language, and that those two things may not be utterly different. The question that may come up in the technological future is whether machines could possess that. Could machines, either as gods or as human-like things, have the imago dei if they were to be like humans? Could they be like us? I'm someone who believes there's nothing in principle that humans can do that machines can't, so I tend to feel positive about that conclusion. Thank you.